championship now in England, I think. The written press is an afterthought because it doesn't give them what they want with social media, their own websites, which are the priority. So it's, it's changed completely from the old days. It's increasingly aping football. That's regrettable, but probably inevitable. I think you see the conduct of players on the field. I find this incredibly regrettable. The arm waving, the ear aching of a referee, the simulation, frankly, the milking of situations is just terrible and absolutely against the spirit of the game. I think it's deeply damaging. I know why it happens because they haven't found a balance between revenue and matches. But the fact that Test Rugby has become ordinary, routine, as opposed to special, which it used to be, is terrible. Hello and thanks for downloading the latest edition of the Forward Pass podcast. My name is Graham Jenkins, and you'll soon hear me chatting to Steve Bale, the former rugby correspondent of The Independent, The Daily Express and The Sunday Times, about his long and varied career covering the sport. But don't forget, the rest of the Forward Pass podcast archive is also available, including my recent conversations with Sky Sports' Miles Harrison and the British and Irish Lions Head of Communications' Dave Barton. I hope you enjoy the latest episode. Joining me on the Forward Pass podcast today to look back on their career is the vastly experienced, widely respected and recently retired rugby union journalist Steve Bale. The former rugby correspondent at The Independent and The Daily Express, Steve reported on the game for seven different newspapers during his long career, most recently The Sunday Times for whom he filed his final match report from Exeter's Premiership final victory over Wasps back in May. Following his retirement, his friend, fellow rugby scribe and former podcast guest Chris Hewitt said, Steve's journalism, critically astute and big-heartedly generous in equal measure, touched the heights because he brought to his work an instinctive feel for language, a deep knowledge of rugby history and an even more profound love of the game. Warm praise indeed, I think you'll agree, Steve. So when and where did you fall in love with the game? Well, I I think it's fair to say I uh, attended rugby on my grandfather's and father's knees in those uh, early years of my youth. Um... When I came into rugby writing, it was kind of more by accident than design. I finished a history degree at Cardiff University in 1973, had to decide what to do. History was oddly relevant because it involved the writing of essays. So somehow I pointed myself in that direction and uh, went to the careers office, applied to about three dozen newspapers all around the place most of which rejected me because they didn't take graduates. But three of my letters, which had gone to the Neath Guardian, the Aberdare Leader, and the Merthyr Express, all ended on the same personnel officer's desk because they were all part of the same group. They offered me an interview, and lo and behold, they sent me to Neath, which was really going home. Uh-huh. And was that a general news reporting training scheme or something? Absolutely. I started as a general reporter. I was doing sport, I was doing rugby, but it involved, for example, covering the Border Council, the Magistrates Court, you name it. Um, in the Neath area at the time, obviously 
meet with a senior club, normally covered by the chief reporter. There were 11 uh, clubs, Welsh Rugby Union member clubs in the borough, and basically my responsibility was to all of them. I set out, age 21, to try and ensure each of them had a report in the newspaper every week, which wasn't the case when I started. And I achieved that within, a, I suppose, a couple of years, to the extent that we ended up in initiating a merit table. We called it the Neat Guardian Merit Table, mm-hmm. uh, in which all 11 participated. So all the games they played contributed to this. It was done on a percentage basis. And it carried on for some time after I left. Mm-hmm. Well, was there anyone there particularly that took you under their, under their wing to begin with? Well, I certainly would have a very fond memory of the editor there, whose name was Elvis Reese, who certainly was one of my mentors in my career. Um, you may be interested to know that my predecessor was Tim Glover, oh, right. who yeah. um, became a noted rugby and golf writer. And my immediate successor was Simon Kellner, who went on to be editor of The Independent, no less. Yes. And uh, among others, there was a guy there called, uh, late, just after me, called Stephen Evans, who's now to be seen as the BBC's correspondent in Korea. It's a, a hotbed for talent, by the sounds of it. Well, when the paper was actually closed in 2009, I think it was, and they did do a little um, tribute to those who had gone before, including Simon, Tim, Steve. Um, but the uh, company that closed it down, it's the same company that owns the Western Mail and other papers, didn't make a song and dance about it because that would simply have shown that they were shutting this great institution. Mm-hmm. But they carried on and did that anyway. Was it, uh, was it within Neath Guardian that you eventually became a, a specific sports reporter, or did that come later? No, no. I, my career path followed what in those days was a traditional path. So I started at the local weekly paper, managed then to get a job at the local evening paper, which is the South Wales Evening Post in Swansea. I did a little time in Swansea, then went to the Neath district office, and then covered Neath all the time, as well as my other duties, which are essentially similar to as they had been at the Neath Guardian. But after uh, about three years there, I had an offer to join the South Wales Argus in Newport as a rugby writer. Mm -hmm. So from covering Neath, I went to covering Newport, stayed there for a few years, eventually had an offer to join the Western Mail, uh, which was a major career break for me, and I was one of the rugby team Mm-hmm. And is it uh, John Billett you, you previously mentioned in terms of as a huge influence at the Western Mail? Was he your sports reporter, sports editor there? Well, John was uh, our sports editor, but he was a writing sports editor. So in effect, he was the rugby correspondent as well. He was a major influence on my career. Um, he, I mean, uh, among other ones of his proteges was Robert Cole, who's very well known to people in the rugby world. Chris Jones. Lately, of the Evening Standard, mm-hmm. we were known we were known as Billow's Boys. Uh, John never liked going away, so Rob and I used to go to Paris, for example, or Scotland to cover the games. A major breakthrough for me. I remember in 1983, I hadn't been there long. The last thing John would have wanted to do was go to Bucharest to see Wales play Romania, mm. so he sent me instead, and Wales calamitously lost the game, captain. Eddie Butler, 
Uh, and I had to produce two broadsheet pages of copy, including the first ever player ratings in the Western Mail. Oh, so it's your fault, it's your fault Steve, for the player ratings. <laughs> well, having to do those at that time gave me a deep aversion to doing them throughout the succeeding decade. So if I could ever palm them off on someone else, I always did. And when I was on the Express for all those years, we had a guy in the office called Andrew Elliott who was very interested in rugby and used to really enjoy doing the ratings. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, during the 2003 World Cup, he did them all from London, and that was perfectly fine with me. Yeah. You, you mentioned people who were sort of influential in your career. By that, do you mean they were also influential in terms of your written style, or, or were there certain people that well, you, you read growing up that you sort of took lead from? Well, it's interesting you, you should say that. I mean, growing up, I, I was a Guardian reader when I was a student. Mm -hmm. uh, to be honest, I was more interested in cricket writing mm -hmm. uh, in those days. So, as I say, I just fell into rugby writing. Um, I mentioned Alvid Reese, John Pillow. I wouldn't say stylistically, but once I joined the Independent, I had two years in the office in London there when Jeffrey Nicholson was the inaugural rugby correspondent. And in terms of the way I write, uh, I would say he was a, a major influence. He was always going to retire after two years. And basically, I was trained up to succeed him in 1988. Mm. And yes, he, in that sense, he would be a major influence on me and a very, very fond memory I have of Jeff. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, obviously, the move to the Independent, that's being a national title. How, how did that move come about? Well, first of all, well, I think what happened was I had a friend working for The Guardian who told me, uh, oh, there's this new paper starting. If you're interested, write a letter, here's the address. So I wrote a letter to Andrew Switton-Smith, who was, became the editor once it had started. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, that... Uh, letter landed on the desk of one Simon Kellner, later the East Guardian, who by then had been appointed the deputy sports editor uh, at the new Independent. And uh, that very day I had a phone call because he knew me. Mm -hmm. um, can you come to London? I had an interview, and the interview was actually over several pints in a pub called The Artillery near <laughs> the Independent's first offices. And the next day I had the offer of a job, it was all done within a week, it was incredible. Um, I, I mean, I've never particularly been ambitious, pushy in my career, I don't think that things have just happened like that, it's who you know, uh, and so I started there. Initially I was a sports sub, but I was one of Jeff Nicholson's backups writing rugby, I was still living in South Wales and uh, used to cover the Welsh rugby, going to a Welsh game on a... Saturday, and it, it went from there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you spent 10 years there, so um, I imagine it was largely happy times there. Well, uh, 10 years at the title, the last eight as rugby correspondent. Those first, I don't know, two or three years as rugby correspondent were just blissful. Absolute free reign. It was quite creative. They expected a rugby presence in the paper every day, less than it would have been in later years, but nonetheless, it's, it was quite a responsibility, but I loved it. Then, oh, from about 1991 onwards, the cutback started, so that by the time I eventually departed in 96, it was really tight, and I just decided it's time to leave. Mm -hmm. 
and it was the Sunday Express was the next port of call. Well, that, that's exactly right, Graham. It wasn't the Daily Express. Uh, I had a uh, the Sunday Express at the time had a lot of investment being made in it, as did the Daily Express, and was specifically going up market. And they uh, recruited quite a few people, Tim Glover among them, uh, to try and uh, fulfil that ambition. And when I eventually left, I joined in July '96. Um, I was given, I was told that there would be two years minimum where this would apply. Within three months, the company had been sold to Lord Hollick, and the very first thing he did was um, merge the Daily and Sunday Expresses into a seven-day operation, which effectively left me as the rugby correspondent of the seven-day operation, which was a massive shift because when I joined, the very first thing I did, the first day I uh, worked for the Sunday Express, they sent me to the inaugural Tri-Nations Rugby in Australia and New Zealand in July '96. I covered the first four games of that uh, tournament, uh, and it must have cost them a fortune, mm. but that showed how serious they were about taking sport and rugby particularly seriously and what they were prepared to invest in. Mm -hmm. As I say, that all changed all too quickly. And by then, I was stuck in a sense. And is um, within within that um, time frame at the Express was obviously England's World Cup triumph. Does that stick um, stick out in the mind in terms of pressure? Well, uh, it was a privilege to be present. That's for sure. Um, I, I wouldn't say that was my fondest memory of an individual match. That final, I have others. Uh, the sort of thing that used to go on was this: during that tournament, obviously, I'm in Australia for that's part of two months. Um, we got as far as the quarter-final when my laptop broke down. I report this to the office. They did not have a replacement. There was no replacement. They to, and, and by that stage, using a laptop was just a fundamental tool of the trade. Mm -hmm. They had to take a laptop off someone in London, uh, courier it to Sydney. I eventually received it during the week of the final, so I've been two weeks without a laptop, I had to borrow David Hans of the Times laptop for the best part of that period when he wasn't using it. Uh, and when it got to Sydney, it was then impounded by custom. Uh, I, I had to pay, I think it was the equivalent of £130 to get it out of customs, so that I would have it for, from roughly the Wednesday or Thursday until the final and the days after. Uh, I, I do have other games that uh, give me fonder memories than that, <laughs> I, I can promise you. Well, well, we'll come to those in a moment, but whilst, whilst you mentioning in terms of how you're filing copy, how has that process changed from, from your oh, days? Oh, well, Graham, I mean, it, it, at the start, the, uh, there were only two ways you did it. If you were in an office, you typed it mm -hmm. onto pieces of paper with a carbon copy, so off it went to cop, uh, typesetters, uh, and you kept a copy, so you had that as a reference. Or, if you were out of the office, and this would particularly apply by the time I was at the Western Mail, so covering live matches on a Tuesday or Wednesday evening, which happened every week in Welsh Rugby, then you got on the phone and dictated it to a copy taker. Mm -hmm. Now, by the time we got to the independent, well, when I was appointed rugby correspondent, I was given a machine called a Tandy 200, 
mouthpiece and hope that it got through. And if you were in Australia, well, it might or it might not. Um, but that was incredibly sophisticated for the time. And then in the end, we all had laptops, we all had emailing, uh, and that's how it ended up, which, which meant that the, the computer you had, the, the laptop computer you had, was absolutely critical to your work. So if anything ever went wrong with it, particularly when it's owned by the company, and this particularly applied at the Express, then you were in terrible trouble if they wouldn't replace it or immediately repair it. And I don't know, that must have happened to me half a dozen times at the Express. And basically, you couldn't operate properly, courtesy of the company itself. Yeah. Amazing, really, <laughs> that you're left, left in such a position. Well, it was chronic, and, I, and my colleagues would have experienced exactly the same thing. I mean, Neil Squires was my great friend and colleague at the Express, would have experienced precisely the same thing on at least as many occasions while mm -hmm. we were there together. Mm -hmm. in, in, in those sort of days, in, in the height of your sort of uh, rugby college, how would, how would your sort of working week break down as such? Well, <laughs> that's an interesting one. When I was at the Independent, as I said, it, it was much more creative far less organised. For, for example, during an England week, far less organised. You had to make your own decisions on what you would write about, who you would write about. And actually that lasted right up to Clive Woodward's period. Um, because although it became very arranged, Clive would name his team on a Tuesday without any compunction. Then all the members of the squad were obliged to be present and available for at least an hour after he'd uh, given out the team and you could choose who you thought was the best person to interview for a given day and people would do different people you might do someone the day after another paper had or the day before you just had to be mature adult about it but then um, when after Martin Johnson had become boss that was when they put the team to Thursday which was the international obligation 48 hours before the start, and the whole thing changed because then there was far less leeway because the team wasn't out to Thursday. And I can tell you the precise moment when Martin Johnson thought this would be a good idea uh, was I attended a sports journalist lunch in Fleet Street when Martin was a guest, and a non-rugby sports journalist asked him, Martin, why is it you name your team so early in the week? Aren't you giving the opposition um, an, an advantage by doing so. Why don't you leave it till later in the week? And, and Martin said, oh, I haven't thought of that. <laughs> and sure enough, that's exactly what he did. Now, Clive Woodward's attitude was, I don't care. Uh, if they know it, I want them to see it, really, because yeah. we're a good team. They can start worrying about it. So anyway, Martin changed it to Thursday. Stuart Lancaster, likewise. And it meant that you didn't get the team till Thursday. They then arranged the week around individuals they chose to be the interviewee on a given day. So you'd have someone on a Monday, someone on a Tuesday. Wednesday was normally a day off. You'd have had someone else on a Tuesday. It was embargo to write that day. So everyone was writing about exactly the same individual. So you might open, well, the Express in my case, or the Guardian, say, at the other end of the spectrum. Mm. And every time... It was the same individual being interviewed. Yeah. In my case, I was by then living in Somerset. I used to travel up to either the Pennyhill Park Hotel where they stayed or Twickenham, very often with 
we would share and we were toing and froing all week up the A303 to the extent that when I finished, I said to Rob, thank goodness I will never again have to drive past Stonehenge. If I never see it again, that will be quite enough. Um, and so these weeks were arranged. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you didn't have to go Thursday. So by the fri time Friday came, so it would be the night before the game, if the game was at Twickenham, I, uh, I asked the office to stay in a hotel locally because I was absolutely whacked by then. So mm -hmm. I graced the travel lodge at Sunbury and the travel lodge at Teddington on more occasions than I would care to remember. And after I finished at the Express, Neil Squire, who then became rugby correspondent, hadn't quite appreciated what was involved in this extreme regimentation. After the first round of England games, after I finished, which would have been uh, the Six Nations of 2015, I guess, um, or it might have been the autumn of 2014, he said, my God, I feel completely institutionalised. And so it's gone, and nothing's changed. The fun went out of uh, covering England when all that happened for me. Mm. You brought the journalistic sort of career down with, with the Sunday Times, working alongside Stephen Jones, which I which yeah. I understand was quite special for you. Well, it was. Stephen and I have been very profound friends for a long time. I can tell you, first time I encountered Steve, I was at the Western Mail. We used to cover London Welsh just the same as any other Welsh club in those days. So I'm talking about from 83 to the 86. And Steve was the London Welsh press officer. Uh -huh. So they had press officers in those days. But all he did, I rang him up and he'd give me the team that week. Um, but yeah, we've been very profound friends. He'd be another big mentor of mine and pushing me in the right direction. So when I was made redundant by the Express in 2014, which I was very happy to be so made, by the way. Um, he undoubtedly was influential in sort of getting me this job. It's basically a part-time job uh, as Welsh correspondent for the Sunday Times. Uh, Alex Butler, who's the Sunday Times sports editor, had been my original head of sport at the Sunday Express all those years ago, and wow. um, clearly had never forgotten me. <laughs> I sense I know the answer to this question, but it sounds like you enjoyed being part of the rugby pack. There's obviously some rivalries, but obviously uh, friendships as well. Well, I, I can honestly say, Graham, that I was never a competitive animal, so rivalries only up to a point. Um, since I've retired, since I finished at the Express, I can honestly say I haven't missed the England beat, English rugby beat, one bit. So I have been asked to dip into Premiership Rugby, for example, from time to time by the Sunday Times. What I have missed is them, my colleagues, who are uniformly wonderful people, fantastic company. We were able to keep each other going, if you like, during those long tours away. I was away on a tour or a Summer World Cup every year from 1988 until 2014, every single summer. So, you know, that's a lot of time out of your life when you have kids and they're growing up yeah. and we kept each other going and uh, all of those Steve Jones, Chris Hewitt, Rob Kitson, David Hans have done most to keep me going I would suggest. Mm -hmm. And 
And it's, um, I think you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but it's 44 years you, you were reporting on the sport. What, yeah. what, are there games in particular that stick out or perhaps characters that stick in the memory more? Well, I, I was thinking about this, actually. Um, that World Cup final of 2003 obviously was a, a mega event, probably the biggest single event. But a, a, a couple of choices of matches. When Cornwall won the county championship at Twickenham in 1991, they beat Yorkshire. Mm -hmm. And they, 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 it's the first time they'd won it since 1908. It wasn't a great game, but the whole day was sensational. Drove up to Twickenham, past dozens of coaches going from Devon, Cornwall. They said you couldn't hire one west of Taunton. Um, and then they, they won this in extra time. And I just remember this try. This, there were 40,000 or more Cornish people in a crowd of 50,000. Mm. And Cornwall won a line-out. There was a guy, a winger called Tommy Bassett, whose name I remember to this day, he was a publican in St. Ives. He came in off the wing on a crash. The forwards got in behind him, and it was as if the whole team were driving into the line. The crowd were going bonkers, so it was as if the whole of Cornwall were driving into the line, and he made it over, and that was the breakthrough moment. And, it, and when they went back to Cornwall, they, they crossed the river, the River Tamar at uh, Launceston, and they had crowds of people all the way to Truro. That's how much it meant. That's how much rugby means in Cornwall meant then and means now, as you can see, from Exeter's success, yeah. which is partly, at least, based on uh, you know their Cornish connection. And the, the other game, uh, this is a much more personal one, but um, I always prided myself on utter stoicism in the press box to the extent that I would chide others who might be moved to applaud or even cheer. Um, but this is a memory from 1996 when Nice had to score seven tries to beat Pontypridd in the decisive uh, game in the Welsh League. Seven tries because they had this convoluted bonus point system mm -hmm. and they got the vital extra bonus point for seven tries. Uh, and five minutes before the end, uh, Gareth Llewellyn uh, created a try for Steve Williams, which was the seventh try, and I pounded my fist on the desk in front of me, which was extremely unprofessional, and I've never forgotten it. And it was the, it was the end of Neath's glorious decade when they were nearly always the best team in Wales and for much of it the best in Britain as well. And it was the end of that first season after the game had gone open the team immediately broke up. Gareth Llewellyn, for example, went to Harlequin. Steve Williams went on to play for London Irish and Northampton. Uh, and that was the end of their great years. So they, of all clubs, were hopelessly uh, unable to cope with professionalism to the extent, and they were not alone, that they basically went through mm -hmm. in subsequent years. But that, that's a very fond memory of mine. Uh, and in those days, that was for the independent. And by almost at the end of my independent career, but the, the independent would cover such a match in Welsh rugby. Mm. They weren't entirely fixated on English rugby. And uh, since I've been back in Wales for the Sunday Times, I have noticed it. Well, it's easy. I was part of it for decades. Everything is through the prism of England and English rugby. And it's, it's just really noticeable. I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that's how it is. Mm -hmm. You, you speak of um, certain matches, though. Are there certain pieces that you remember 
writing? Do you have call to to reflect on what you've written, or did it, is it all a bit of a blur because you've churned out so many words over the years? <laughs> well, I've had to churn out millions of words. Um, I, I have kept my cuttings, and occasionally I rather vainly might open an old scrapbook or something and quite enjoy what I read, if I'm honest. Yeah. I know that sounds arrogant, but if I'm honest, I think these last two and a half years of the Sunday Times are when I've written stuff that other people would not have been able to do. And I only say that because, A, I have the sort of contacts in Wales to do it, and B, there's no question the Sunday Times has a cachet that encourages people to want to do it. So, for example, during this time, I did the first interview all these years later with Gareth Jenkins since he was sacked as Wales coach. Mm -hmm. He's never done an interview on that subject before. So I was quite proud of that. And he said it like he felt it. He, he was under um, legal obligation not to talk about it for a number of years, but that had expired and he was more than willing to do so. Likewise, Mike Rudder, First time he'd ever spoken about it after resigning as Wales coach in 05. Mm -hmm. So things like that. But also um, administrators of the Welsh Rugby Union, Martin Phillips, the chief exec, never given an interview of this kind before, but it was Sunday time, so he did so. Gareth Davis, the chairman. And, and they were quite hard-hitting, and, and I, I was quite proud of the work I did in these latter days. Mm -hmm. well, did anyone ever take exception to anything you wrote in a report or a, an opinion piece? Oh, plenty of times. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember once, um, well, there's a couple of things I remember. First of all, I was quite friendly with a player called Elgin Reese, mm -hmm. who played for Nice, played for Wales, he played for the Lions before he played for Wales. Um, we were sort of connected through friends of his. And I used to give him great write-ups in the evening post in Swansea, because he was a good good player. He was the next wing after Gerald Davis, without Gerald's skill, but he was very elusive. And then one day, he played for Nisa Bridgend, and, and Glenn Webb scored a hat-trick of tries opposite him. And I've just put a line in the Western Mail to say um, how Glenn Webb had run rings around him with a hat-trick of tries. Well, I happened to be covering Nisa again the following week, and he made a point of telling me how upset he was by that, which I thought was a bit excessive, since it was merely the truth. Mm. I also remember when we, there was a press conference once at the um, hotel in Richmond that England used to stay in, and it involved uh, Fran Cotton, Clive Woodward, and a guy called Cliff Brittle, who's become chairman of the RFU, very contentious figure. Uh, and I said how Clive had looked longingly into the distance or something because Cliff Brittle was trying to rein in the clubs. Uh, and Clive took great exception to that even though it was true. But by and large, no. People in rugby, certainly until more recent years, have been rational, usually educated and intelligent, if I can put it that way, mm. and sensible enough to know there's a discussion to be had rather than an argument. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, apart from that, not really. No. Well, on, on a similar theme, were, were there certain players or coaches you, you try and make a beeline for known for where they'd be great copy? <sighs> well... In, in more recent days, but again, it's, it's the institutionalised thing, but if ever James Haskell was the subject, you knew he would talk and talk well. Mm -hmm. Lawrence Delalio used to be like that. I mean, it, in a sense, it was self-serving, because in both cases, they, they knew the value of staking their case, whatever it, subject it may have been about. I mean, Lawrence had all that 
rather than be called the media officer, it became, it became called the media prevention officer. Uh, and there was a, a truth in that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I better not say who, what club or whatever, but one of my colleagues on the national press rang the press office and said, can I speak to X player, an England player, this particular week? The press officer said, no, we put out the two players we're uh, making available, and the two players were ones who were scarcely known. So the reporter duly rang the player directly, who was perfectly happy to chat. Mm -hmm. He went in the paper, and the press officer went ballistic yeah. with the reporter, who didn't care, mind. But uh, that, that's the sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I feel I'm well out of it in that regard lately. I can, I'll say this, since I've been covering the Welsh regions just for this past two or three years, the press officers there have been uniformly helpful and accommodating. And I suspect that's because they see the value of having their brand, if I can call it that, mm -hmm. in a paper such as the Sunday Times, um, and take it from there. So in the premiership now in England, I think, the written press is an afterthought because it doesn't give them what they want with social media, their own websites, which are the priority. So it's, it's changed completely from the old days, mm -hmm. the good old days. Yeah. You, you touched on online and social media there. Did that, how did that impact in terms of what, what you needed to produce during, um, as that grew as an important Well, element? I can tell you, Graham, that it impacted on me hardly at all. I resisted it like crazy mm -hmm. um, in my Luddite, fashion. Um, in the end, you had to do some things. So, for example, I remember the 2013 Lions Tour, every one of those uh, games which kicked off in the morning UK time, I had to produce uh, sort of 800 word on the whistle online piece. So, um, but it, it was quite minimal. Now, four years on this recent Lions Tour, New Zealand is a nightmare in one sense because of the 11-hour time difference at this time of the year. Mm. I mean, at the 2011 World Cup, it was 13 hours in the end. And this makes it a genuine 24-hour news cycle. Yeah. And people in London, and I can say this from experience, have little or can have little conception of what it means to be op having to operate in the middle of the night in New Zealand because it's the middle of the day in the UK. Mm. Absolutely debilitating if you're bothered with that all the time. I mean, at the Express, fortunately, they were quite sympathetic. Um, but the last tour I went on, it was 2014, when England were in New Zealand, I think that's right, um, colleagues were having to do, I mean, Chris Boy, the Daily Mail, after each of those test matches in New Zealand, he'd have to do three pieces straight away for online, another three pieces or more, hundreds, thousands of words for the Mail on Sunday and the same again for the Daily Mail on Monday. And you just, you run out of inspiration in the end. And this, this is how people now have to operate. And I'm, I'm really glad I don't have to. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, you, um, you talk about inspiration. You, you were a rugby correspondent for 29 years, I think. You, you, That's correct. You said, how do you maintain your enthusiasm 
and for, for the subject matter and for the actual process during that time? Well, it did get quite difficult. I, mean, I have to confess that by the end of those, well, the, the first 26 of those 29 years, I felt completely weighed down with the need to produce, to be creative day after day after day. Um, it's fair to say that at the Express, there were only a couple of people in the office who really had a great knowledge of rugby. So my brief on ordinary days was to produce something, mm -hmm. you know, something good. Um, and in the end, you run out of ideas. I mean, I could even say that happened to me at the Sunday Times. And uh, working at the Express was interestingly different from the Independent. The workload was probably slightly less, but the, the change, the big change was the need for quotes, 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 quotes. So uh, the Independent, you could write a complete piece without a single quote if you felt that was the way to do it. Mm. But it had to have quotes at the Express, so I adapted to that in a couple of years. But what it meant was, essentially, it was lazy for me, because you'd be writing a piece of, say, 750 words, and if, should we say, 375 of them are quotes, then my need to write something fluent and fluid and uh, decent prose was that much less. Mm. So in the end, I found it all too easy, in a sense. Um, so, yeah, it certainly changed over between those two papers. Mm -hmm. Do, do you think the, the sport's in a good shape today, you know, in terms of the way you've seen it grow over the course of your career? Well, I think it ought to be, but, I mean, let's be honest, it's increasingly aping football. That's regrettable, but probably inevitable. Mm -hmm. I think you see the conduct of players on the field. I find this incredibly regrettable. The arm waving, the ear aching of the referee, the simulation, frankly, the milking of situations the asking for yellow cards. I mean, you only look, look at the um, incidents with Bowden Barrett in the second test. Now, I'm not saying the incidents themselves weren't reprehensible, but you just see starts to get up and then goes down again because, you know, it's a way of milking the situation. Well, that kind of thing is just terrible and absolutely against the spirit of the game. Uh, I just, I don't know how it's to be controlled, but... There is not a scrum half in the game, is, is there, who at any given breakdown doesn't have both arms up parallel with the ground, <laughs> basically appealing to the referee for some, something. Mm. And I, they ought to find a way to stop it. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, is, is there one thing about the game you'd, you'd perhaps tweak, whether that be law or just the way it's represented or anything? Sorry, well, there's two things, if I may. Of course. The surface of Test Rugby, it, I think, is deeply damaging. I know why it happens, because they haven't found a balance between revenue and matches. But the fact that Test Rugby has become ordinary, routine, as opposed to special, which it used to be, is terrible. And uh, I, it used to be the case that when... Uh, you came to a Six Nations, or Five Nations as it was, it was a thing of wonder. Now it's just part of the annual routine, for me anyway. Mm. Uh, you know, when you're playing, say, 14 test matches a year, way too much, when it used to be half a dozen. That was quite enough. And one day, they might just kill the goose that laid the golden egg. The other thing, Graham, is the Lions. That the notion of reducing it 
10 matches to 8 is, to me, it's the death of the Lions. On the contrary, and I've experienced Lions talks that were this long, they should increase it to 12 games, have a proper lead-up to the first test, when they have both game-time preparation and the coach has the opportunity to look at the players properly. And if it's surely to goodness they can do this once every four years. The people who want it reduced to eight games really subliminally want the Lions killed off. And they, it's quite cynical in my view. Every stakeholder in the game says they love the Lions. They don't. They don't. The Lions is a great thing that happens every four years. Look at what we've just experienced. But they were shafted from beginning to end by the Lions themselves, the Lions organisation itself, Premier Rugby, the Pro 12, the New Zealand Rugby Union who refused to move at all, everyone, bar the players, the coaches and the wonderful fans who went there. Mm. You know, it's absolutely true. And how about in terms of... You let, what sort of state do you leave rugby union, um, the media side of things? Do you think that's an equally healthy healthy state? Well, I'm, I'm not quite sure because I've been out of that mainstream for a, a couple of years, but I'm told, like Steve Jones told me, that the new lads who have come in, the new generation, we used to call them the kindergarten yeah. when I was still there, uh, are good lads who are serving the game well, certainly as well as they possibly can, under much more difficult circumstances than I would ever have experienced, you know, with the need to service websites, newspapers, seven-day newspaper cycle, 24-hour news cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, evidently, they do a really good job. Um, but it's very fluid, isn't it? Very fluid. Newspapers are in drastic mm-hmm. decline. Uh, I was very lucky to get the job at the Sunday Times, which is one place where they still take the printed word very seriously, but it's just not the case in many other places. Mm-hmm. And perhaps just to wrap things up, Steve, in terms of what sort of skills would you would you encourage from those hoping to, to follow a similar career path to yours? Well, that's an interesting... I am sometimes asked, Graham, um, A, how I got into it, and B, what I suggest to someone who now wants to get into it. And I'm really, uh, I'm so past it, I can't really give adequate advice anymore. I mean, when I started, I was trained up on a local paper. I went on courses. I learned shorthand, which is the greatest thing I ever did was learn shorthand, which is part of the course. You have to do it. Mm. Um, And then eventually sat exams in newspaper practice, newspaper law, all sorts of stuff, which gave me a qualification, a certificate. um, It's called the National Council for the Training of Journalists Certificate. And you basically, in those days, I'm talking about the 70s, you couldn't carry on unless you got this. Well, I think it still exists, but I think it's much looser the way you get in. You've got to find your own way. There are far more media courses, for example, than there used to be. When I finished at Cardiff University, the only um, journalism course in the land was at Cardiff University, as it happened. So I applied to do a postgraduate year. There are 200 applicants, uh, of which 20 got a position. I didn't get a position. So that's when I started writing to all those papers. Mm-hmm. And, and just a brief follow on that, Steve, you, 
you obviously uh, value the role the the NUJ has played in your career as well, and you probably encourage people to embrace that still. Well, I, yes. Uh, when I started at the Leith Guardian, it was a closed shop. Everyone in that organisation was called Celtic Press, and included all those other papers I applied to. It had to be a member of the National Union of Journalists, so I joined straight away. So that would have been September or August 1973, and I remained a member ever after. In fact, I've just been made a life member, having been a member for 44 years. And it's cost me a lot of money. We had, they, we, we had a seven-week provincial paper strike in 1977-8. So, you know, uh, I've done my bit. Um, but they did. They saved my job once at the Express. Mm-hmm. Um, I was commended. Neil Squires and I were commended by the sports editor after the 2003 World Cup for our coverage. It was just the two of us doing it for the Sunday Anti-Daily Express where the male titles had nine or ten by the time of the final. Mm-hmm. So we did it all by ourselves. And Bill Bradshaw, the sports editor, sent this as sort of official uh, commendation. That, so that was the end of 03. In about February or March 04, I had a phone call out of the blue by someone describing himself as a managing editor, saying he wanted to have a meeting to discuss my future, and arranged to meet me at Bristol Temple Meet Station. I contacted the national organiser of the NUJ, who said he can't do that. We have an agreement with the Express. We can't pick off people. He's not the managing editor, managing direct, uh, editor anyway. And basically, he was stopped. The meeting never took place, and my job was saved. And I got another 10 years out of it. Mm-hmm. It just shows how precarious life could be even then. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, um, going by the last hour, you certainly deserve... Uh, a rest, Steve. So, best of luck with the rest of uh, your retirement, and thanks so much for spending some time looking back on your career with me. Well, thank you, Graham. I can tell you that reminiscing like this has been wonderful. I'm very grateful to you.